0: welcome to book shambles you're listening to an abridged version of this episode you can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a patreon supporter of the show and that's for as little as one dollar a month via patreon and uh, you can support us so just go to patreon.com forward slash you, you, i still say forward slash I'm, I'm nearly 51 thank you uh forward slash book shambles for more info and how to pledge
1: Hello and welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. This week's episode, another one we recorded in the studio uh, before lockdown and everything went crazy. Uh, Robin and Josie together for this one, talking to Oliver Double, who's a former stand-up, now a lecturer at Kent uh, University, and a comedy historian. He's His new book uh, about the history of alternative comedy in the UK, you may have heard Robin and Josie and Stuart Lee talking about this book on the Stay at Home Festival a couple of weeks ago when Stu was our guest on The Morning Show. So this is all about that book, which is available now. And a quick note about Patreon as well. Since a few people have been asking, you might have seen that we've launched a Cosmic Shambles Network Patreon this week, patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Uh, since we're not going to be able to do live shows for quite a while, uh, that Patreon will be helping to raise money to produce all the extra live streams and the stay-at-home festival and lots of other sort of live stream shows that we've got planned to fill that void. What that means for you uh, as a Book Shambles Patreon is nothing. Nothing will change for you. The tiers remain the same. The Book Shambles Patreon supporters will uh, get everything that the Cosmic Shambles Patreon supporters get. But this Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles, will be the only place and the only way that you can get extended episodes of the Book Shambles podcast. So you'll still get everything that you're currently getting. Nothing changes at all. It's just this Patreon is now much more focused on the Book Shambles podcast, whereas the other one will cover everything else we do, uh, except for the extended episodes and the extra kind of bookish goodies that we'll be giving away on this patreon so thank you very much for your support on patreon uh if you'd like to sign up to this one patreon.com book shambles or the cosmic shambles one that's patreon.com cosmic shambles enough of that on to the
0: episode You can't it work it like. out. You can't work it out and if you look right. So anyway, I hello.
2: I'm so excited to see you and I haven't yet had a copy of your book and I've, I've read others of your books and obviously been like thrilled that you've been such a wonderful um, advocate for interesting comedy for the past 20 years and have like supported and nurtured so many comedians that I admire and think are wonderful. And um, we're speaking to Oliver Double today. I'm Josie Long. This is Robin and Josie's book Shambles. Um... I went straight in for the intro, didn't I? Go for it. Very good. Normally, I'm very shy, but (laughs) it's really exciting to talk to you. I feel like um, you're somebody who understands and loves comedy more than most people I know, and it's very exciting to have you here. And we should talk about comedy and books.
0: Well, it is your your new book is uh, alternative comedy, and it's in it from a Methuen series, which is basically about different, predominantly theatrical movements. Yes, it is. um, this is And you, I'll give people a bit, bit of background, which is uh, you, you were a stand-up comic, you ran yeah. a gig in Sheffield, and then for certainly the last probably 25 years, you've been at the University of Kent, where you've, uh, is that right? What's I
3: started one? in 99 at Kent, and then I did two years at Liverpool John Moores before that. Right. But I was still, at that point, I was still gigging, you know, I was still driving from Liverpool to Hull and back, you know, <laughs> getting back at 3am to teach at 10 the next day, that kind of thing. And I still occasionally do bits of Bob's. Like I, there's a monthly club at the Gobenkian uh, called Funny Rabbit, which I helped put together and and uh compare. So I always I always like to feel connected with it because I don't like it when academic, I, there's something about academics where it's like, you know, like um, film studies people uh, can be very there's a sort of um, divide between people who are, who teach filmmaking technique and so on and people who are critics, mm-hmm. right? And that can work really well, and there's the, those two things can coexist. But sometimes you sort of sense that the critic people go, well, the thing is, you, you make films, but I, I actually have to do the hard work of critiquing them. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't want to be that person who stands back and just goes, well, this is what it's all about. I don't know anything about it. I'm not connected with it. Like I I want to feel there's a connection there.
0: Well, that's what I found when I when I went down and uh, for that weekend of uh, um, philosophy of comedy uh, at at the University of Kent. What I thought I went and watched lots of lectures, and they all had interesting things to say, but they were. It reminds me of that old joke about the physicist. I I think trying to sort out a problem with the cows in the field, and he says, "Well, let us start by saying that the cow is imagining the cow is spherical," and that's kind of what it was. Which was uh, every time I would ask a question, which was actually about how comedy works really works as you know and, and about the communication a lot of the study was about the words alone and of course that just removes everything you know it's, it's quite I mean I love the fact that in this book you, not only you know, you've got every um and er uh of Alexis sale oh, yeah. or whoever it might, and you then also have in brackets this is the bit of academia the length <laughs> of laughter yeah. so uh.
3: six seconds nine seconds <laughs> two seconds Whoa. oh, alexis losing it always <laughs> oh, back with an 11 seconder <laughs> actually what I did was I, I made a rule for Myself, that I was going to only note three seconds and above, I think. But then there's some that are important, right? So there's a recording we have in the British Standard Comedy Archive, which is perhaps talk about a bit more later, but was one of the things that that started me working on this. We've got a recording from the Elgin Pub in Labbrook Grove from like, I think January 1980. Yeah, and Alexi's on the bill, right? And, you know, I'll be honest, not everything he does works, and not everything, but the voice is so formed even at that point like all those obsessions all those techniques the the persona everything and there are some moments in there where you just go how can you have only been doing this for a few months huh. you just got like 20 seconds of laughter how did that happen how did you do that in a small pub playing to sort of anarchists and you know socialist squatters and stuff at a pub in Ladbroke Grove how did you do that?
0: Well, it has a lot of similarities to punk in that way that I noticed that things like some of the articles you quote from the stage, which are saying, I mean, these young people have come along and they haven't really done the time and they haven't studied the art of comedy. So it is that bit of you know, as as, as Peel used to say, knocking over a phone box, going to the studio and recording a single, and people go, well, I mean, they they don't really understand. Certainly, they don't understand Mendelssohn uh, with the, their, their, their new song, "Fuck the Pigs," and uh, even, you know, and, it, and it seems to have that same reaction, which is, and also in the same way that because I remember when I first I would have been older than you when I uh, um, it would have been later than you rather when yeah. I uh, I'm never going to be older than you I've checked on the nature of time and, yeah. and Brian Cox says that's impossible but <laughs> when I first went to comedy clubs when I was 16 years old and I would see these and my joy now if I actually saw that my you know if I could properly replay my first night of sitting on a rickety chair at the comedy store or whatever I'll probably go oh it's not that that good really yeah. is it it's not that but the excitement. Of this is different. I'm in another world, and you—you must have had that, Josie, that moment where I mean, I know it's different for you because you you weren't—you know—you were, in fact, you weren't even alive when alternative comedy began.
2: That's true. I, um, yeah, but definitely when I first went to Edinburgh, I was 17, and I was just talking about this in another program. Actually, I, um, I, as part of getting into the final of the BBC New Comedy Awards, they gave us a week, all of the finalists in a flat in Edinburgh at the festival as part of the prize. And so suddenly I was just, like, seeing all these shows and learning what comedy could be and learning so much about what was out there and what it meant. And it was just this... Very intense, very wonderful, like, introduction to it. And like, I went to see Count Arthur Strong and Terry Titter's show, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. <laughs> and honestly, I laughed more than I'd ever laughed up till that point. It was, like, desperate, painful laughter because I just couldn't believe how delightful and unusual and smart it was. And meeting people like David O'Doherty and seeing him do stuff, it was, it was a real education for me. And it was really sort of thrilling to be like, oh, wow, this could be anything. And what it could be isn't just a lot of what I'd seen on... Like, I had memories of seeing, like, Simon Munnery doing Alan Parker, which was a really, really big thing for me. And I obviously loved, like, Vic and Bob and and Herring and Monty Python, so I love things that were, like... Not usual, mm. but at the same time, seeing a lot of the stand up show in the 90s on the BBC, it was like men in suits with uh questions as to whether or not they'd consumed cocaine, and like <laughs> that, that to me, you know, and even my parents would take me to see stuff and they'd take me to see like Lee Hurst, who was you know really good, but like a very sort of like mainstream blokey comedian, and so to get there and be like, What, yeah, this is astonishing.
0: See, that's the difference as well. When I first started going, and, and you talk about this in the book, is it. Wasn't all stand up, so I saw people like Hope Augustus, the, the a cappella singer, yep. And I wow. would see you know the teddy bear torturer, uh, Steve, Steve Murray, Steve Murray yeah, yeah, that wonderful thing. And yeah, the first night I went, Julian Clare, he was on when he was still Joan Collins fan club, <laughs> and John Sparks doing his character. I, th- I think he, I think possibly the first uh, oh my god, absolutely. the comedy store was Frank Hovish, Frank Hovish doing you know, <laughs> and he would do things like you know, ventriloquism with a brick, and <laughs> and so it was. And then I think even by the time I'd started in 92, it had already become increasingly... Stand-up oriented.
3: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, it It was known as alternative cabaret. It was known as the cabaret circuit. Yeah. And it had, I mean, you know, poets as well. That's another thing. People forget the the importance of poets. So um, John Cooper Clark was an influence, but then later he, you know, started doing gigs on the circuit. You had people like Attila... Uh, Benjamin Zephaniah was a big sort of figure in Cassidy Variety, which was a really, I mean, that was one of the surprises of doing the research of the book, really, was how important something like Cassidy Variety was in spreading the circuit, because they got money from the GLC, so they could pay better than anybody, and uh, the cast was part, did this thing called the 32 London Boroughs Tour, right, to support the GLC to uh, protest against its imminent um, uh, sort of cancelling. Mm-hmm. And they, so they did gigs all around London. Wow. And people like – so those bills would be people like the Flying Pickets, maybe, Ben Zephaniah, wow. Pauline Melville. You know, what an amazing sort of eclectic mix yeah. of things. And they could do that through public funding, which was quite surprising because when I first started looking at alternative comedy, it was a long time ago – And, like, Tony, Tony Allen, is quite, for various reasons, against the idea of publicly funded arts because of the idea that, well, it it ties you down to the state and blah, blah, blah. Alexei has a similar sort of feeling... So there's this sort of notion that it was all kind of market forces and that These was part that of it. These people could
2: have gone on the dole. I mean, I'm like, guys, you have no idea. <laughs> I know.
3: And also people could squat. That was the other yeah. thing. Squatting was a really important route of it. People could, people could live for free or, or very cheaply in London, which it's really, really difficult to do now. Yeah. That's weird. When
0: I think about in the probably early 90s where there was just like a, a whole huge road down in Brixton, in which all those blocks of flats were um, squats and kind of alternative culture things just up from where the, the the Brixton Fridge used to be so let's get because we haven't got that long and there's so (laughs) much in this book (laughs) yeah um it's interesting for your definition of alternative comedy because that there's quite a few different people you know whether it's it's Jenny LeCote whether it's John Hegley whether it's Nick Revel Arthur Smith you know that all of those people talking about what what it kind of meant
3: yeah I mean I think I think it's one of those things it's it's been um sort of I mean, you could look at it as a sort of style or approach that is an aesthetic definition. That it's something to do with playing with form, something perhaps with a kind of uh, progressive, or you know, or, or um, challenging politics there. Um, and and th- And then you can start to make the argument well python was was alternative comedy, Lady Bruce was alternative comedy, uh, you know even like Frankie Howard or something, but I think what i 've done is taken it as a specific moment, a specific movement like punk, so you can find things like punk that are before punk, right, but it 's only when punk really kicks off that it becomes broadly recognised as a thing and starts to sort of coalesce and I think I think that you you know you mentioned the parallels I think the parallels are really huge I think there is that thing of people discovering for themselves how to do something that's that's part of it and and prizing sort of ideas above technical virtuosity I think there's a thing to do with uh, challenging the previous iterations of stand-up so there's lots of satire of existing corny joke forms and things like that and you know sending up the kind of boringness and the kind of i don't know conservatism of wife jokes and things like Mm -hmm. that um and then there's people like andy de la tour doing jokes about northern ireland the like of which nobody had really heard in stand-up in britain before i mean there'd be people like um dave allen or or billy connolly or jasper carrot or people like that who who'd done something a bit different from the working men's club style but none of them had gone on stage and talked about northern ireland as if there was an actual conflict rather than psychopathic murderers you know Mm -hmm. and so so uh yeah so 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 it was that moment of people kind of coming together and coalescing into something that that could be identified as a scene or a movement is perhaps a bit pompous way of putting it, but a scene, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a set of venues, there's a set of performers and they kind of know each other. And there's in that set of performers, you've got puppeteers, you've got ventriloquists, you've got, you know, poets, you've got street performers, you've got stand-up comedians.
2: But can I say, this really does remind me of when you started... The book club as well, and what that did to comedy again. I feel like it's like a pattern that repeats. I feel like you know it becomes very, very uh, taken in by the mainstream. It becomes very homogenized, and then what happens is people kick back against it and bring all this enthusiasm and en- energy and excitement to it. And then again, now I feel like we're having the same sort of thing again, and lots of like people are kicking back against this big boom again. And like it's so interesting to think that like how much that mimicked the well. First that was comedy. I
0: mean I was specifically when we started working together on book club. Yeah, and and. All also your adventure club. And, Sunday Night uh, Adventure things, Club, yeah, RIP. Which uh, they were, it was because I went, hang on a minute, what's, what, what's happened? I remember when I was 15, 16 years old going to the clubs and why, and and it was one particular Edinburgh, the opposite actually almost of your experience. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't the opposite. What it was was I went, uh, in fact, that's an absolute lie. I don't even know why I said that. Uh, free was an illusion. We've dealt with that before though. <laughs> but it's... um I went and saw all of these acts that I knew wouldn't work in clubs because not, they not they didn't fit in the clubs. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly I would see this amazing sketch acts and I would see these amazing... Again, puppeteers, you know, Paul, yeah. Paul Garner and Sarah uh, who did these incredible things. And that's why I wanted to start the club was I thought there's all these brilliant things and and, and there's no space for them to play and there's no way for them even to make any money or a- anything. And I think... So that mine was a very specific... Like, whereas you talk about the fact that I think it's quite interesting, which is, you know... Uh, this for and I, I don't think it's entirely true
3: hmm.
0: but that in, in terms of some of the comments that have been made
3: which is that they had no no template whatsoever no i agree uh th- there's definitely a template and actually one of the things i mean there was loads of surprising things came out in the research even though this is something an area i've been looking at for for a long time because uh, I, I i did a phd about stand-up which i did sort of late 80s you know got it in 91 right so i've been looking at this stuff for a long time right mm-hmm. and but there's still there were some pri- surprises right so um uh i've just forgotten my thread now what were we just talking about in no, terms of the precedent... actual influences that there was, oh, the because, influences right you know alexia and others yeah. do say that it was almost like
0: we had no idea we couldn't look back like the uh, like the more traditional comments yeah. could say S-s- oh we can look back yeah. at this particular musical act or whatever but
3: but yeah okay yeah so so you know, within months of the comedy store opening, Richard Pryor live in concert went round selected cinemas in the UK, and the number of people who start, you know, who, who were there at the beginning, who said, "I went to see Richard Pryor live in concert," you know, at uh, the cinema, and so that that connection is there. And also, the number of people who I don't know had Lenny Bruce albums or something like that. So people it didn't come from nowhere. But what's interesting is that people who were there at the time still talk about it in terms of vacuum, and I think it's because. There wasn't a scene, right? So, what about the folk clubs with sort of uh, Billy Connolly and what, Jasper Carrot and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a good point. So, so the folk clubs had had, had, had a number of people. So, uh, yeah, the best known ones would be Connolly, Carrot, Max Boyce, um, uh, Mike Elliott, uh, and, and people like that, and uh, Mike Harding, of course, as well. And but but the thing is, right, about those people was actually if you go back and listen to the recordings, yes, some of them are amazing. Right. And yes it is very different from the working men's club comics but you still get people telling just old gags. Mm-hmm. You know the less well known ones. And you still get people telling rape jokes and Irish jokes and stuff. Not not the, the ones who've who've survived in memory, you know the people who are remembered like the ones I mentioned, you know they wouldn't particularly do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um but but you know but there's a there's an album called I think it's called There was this bloke and it's it's four or five of those people, but let, I think Mike Harding's on it, and, and all the rest of people like Tony Capstick, who are less well known, who incidentally was a very good comic, but he was just telling old jokes really, really well, and and yeah, you know, it's, it's nothing like what we then get in alternative comedy, nothing at all. So I think the the, the thing that's that's different is that there, there wasn't an immediate and obvious scene, you know, so they could, there, there wasn't nothing, right? There was Richard Pryor, you could see in your cinema, you could see a film of his amazing show. You could, you could hear albums of Billy Connolly, you could hear albums of Lenny Bruce, but there wasn't somewhere to go and watch that stuff, not really.
0: And it was, it's interesting, I, I was thinking about how many people uh, also reference Alexi Sale's album Cac. Yeah. As uh, I know Mark Thomas, I think one of the first interviews I read of him when long before i started sound up and he said, he basically heard that and thought, oh, I want to be. And in fact, I remember when I first saw him at the comedy store, um, I remember a particular joke he did which would have very very tiny writing on his grave so he had to go up really close <laughs> and then when he got up there he would just go get off my fucking grave yeah, I remember <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, that was a very and, and that was quite Alexi, you know in yeah. the way that we all start off I think with certain uh, but yeah Cac I know was one and, and I love that album that's, that's have you ever heard it? No oh, it's, it's really fantastic. good it's, it's just really a live really doing the Dr Martin song and all yeah. that kind of stuff as well as lots of uh, yeah. and the Wine Bar song which I used to always sing when I when I did my when my book came out what, the first night I did, I did an event, I went, oh, the person before me had made the room absolutely dead. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I turned to Philip Perry, I went, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing a Lexi
3: Sales wine bar song. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something you all came back
0: fully formed. In my, you know that way that when you listen again and again yeah, 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 and yeah, again, yeah, yeah. and that excitement of... I,
3: I do a project with students now on 80s Alternative, cabaret and one of the reasons i do it is because it's about promoting the idea of you can do it yourself you don't have to wait for simon cowell to tell you you can sing before you just do something right and one of the things i do as part of that project is teach them that song Ah. so i take my mandolin in i've learned the little riff that's played on the keyboard on the album and i give them the lyric sheet and then they work out how to how they want to stage it Wine bazarka wine buskers of all the people dining.
0: Wine bazarka wine buskers of all the people whining. That's the opening.
3: i um, had a multiple orgasm. Yeah, yes, it yes, made, it made me, sick.
0: me sick. I once loved a hamster bird that killed it with a brick. Yeah. <laughs> Rumpty toodle pina colada, half a pound of muesli. What do you think of Shirley Williams ought to go to the toilet? There we go, yeah, that was the song. It goes on like that. Uh, and it was uh, <laughs> but yeah, that that that's what I think. I sometimes, yeah, you know, if, if I look back nostalgically, and I think there are loads of great comics now, but I think because, as you were saying as well, it has become the mainstream. I mean, weirdly, mm-hmm. alternative comedy continued to be used as a label. It did. When people have become enormous, not just the, the people from the first or second, but, you know, huge, Beyond you know, that. mainstream yeah. Saturday night shows. People still go,
2: you yeah, know, Michael McIntyre
0: was one of those alternatives. And what got, is uh,
2: alternative yeah. to bowing to the Queen? How yeah, is that yeah, alternative? Yeah, yeah. That's literally bowing to the establishment. Yeah,
0: I know yeah. when I saw... What was his... Uh, one of his shows was called something like Happy and Glorious. Happy or was, and Glorious. Yeah, yeah. And I did turn to Electric and I went, you caused that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why he's there. You did that,
3: mate. Interestingly, there was a there was a very successful um, review at the Palladium at the end of the war called Happy and Glorious, like a record-breaking review, which was obviously celebrating the victory in the war, which I don't know if that was a conscious thing by McIntyre to reference that, but yeah, it's it couldn't be more establishment. In his book, McIntyre says... Um, that he, he wasn't interested in novelty gimmicks or depth.
2: Wow, I love
3: that <laughs> depth is on the on the same sort of level as gimmicks.
2: A review of Michael McIntyre, I really remember this when he did Edinburgh about fifteen years ago, perhaps longer. It said thank God, this is improvisational stuff, but not like Ross Noble, not weird and imaginative. <laughs> and it was literally like, right, so, sorry, that's what's good about Ross Noble is that he's imaginative and yeah. unusual. Like, what you're saying is, thank God, this is a thing without the thing. <laughs> like, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was very good. I've got to say Michael McIntyre, I haven't seen him yeah. in years, but he was extremely good at, at working the audience. Doing all that have I told you
2: thing. the anecdote yeah. I have of when I met him? No. <laughs> cool. I was seeing a preview of my... Second ever show, maybe my first ever. It was my first ever show. I was about 25, uh, 24, and it was in Newbury. And we were backstage, and he was going on after me. And it was in a golf club in Newbury, which, if you don't know my comedy, is not exactly perfect for me. (laughs) It's not your core demographic. Uh, No, it's not my core demographic to play to 50-year-old who uh, anyway, so I not not obviously now fifty. What I mean by 50 year olds is I was twenty-five at the time. Yeah, I, think at the time. I, I, I think
0: you're fine. We're not even a golf club, and you disenfranchised two-thirds of this room.
3: With,
2: uh, your... <laughs> is it my fault? I'm outnumbered by fifty-year-old. We're, so <laughs> we're the real victims So nonetheless, okay. So what I meant by that was <laughs> no, I, I was twenty-five, it. and at the time, I think to be honest, people went even as young as fifty. I think they were sixty-five. They were golf aficionados. It was not a good connection. Anyway. I went on, did quite badly. Oh, no, before I went on, we were backstage and he said to me, oh, I would love to do what you do. I wish I could do what you do with all the quirky little pictures and things, but all I can do is just really, really make people laugh. But I wish I could do what you
3: do. And it was
2: so mean and it was so, like, why? Do
3: you think (laughs) he was deliberately trying to undermine you or do you think he was being misplacedly kind of
2: is probably just one of those ways that people aren't necessarily self-conscious about things. But I always remembered it because I was like, babe, you've already won. <laughs> you don't yeah, need yeah, to yeah. get a victory lap here. You've already won. It's, it's
3: interesting Lovely that point. To see you, Josie, because I, I do love following you. you <laughs> hang on, what are you saying, Michael? What are you... It's quite interesting you say about the 50-year-old thing because in the Funny Rabbit thing that we do, we have two guest spots, one or two guest spots which we hold open for students so that students who are doing my modules say can get up and do five minutes alongside Beck Hill or something and talk to her and get you know um get advice and that kind of thing and one of the things they get freaked out about is that the audience is more like my age right but it's like they like I get it I would have felt the same right but now if you're our age right uh pointing at Robin there um like you grew up in, with punk and things oh, like truly. that. And also, right? I
2: just need to say, the only reason I said it like that was because, to me, it was intimidating to see people who were like quite obviously very conservative and older. Like, Yeah, yeah, I no, I get really, it. really, really not the slightest can bit disparaging of people fighting. a bit older than me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I um, completely agree. Like on the left. Yet again, you <laughs> No, but well, I well, completely I... agree that, obviously, there's people like 10, 15, 20 years older than me that I massively look up to and gain, inf- like, I'm influenced by and just yeah, adore. Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to be no, silly I know.
3: about we, this. We, I mean, I did, we talked students do a gig to raise money for a Brian Haw peace bench in Whitstable right? And at at Whitstable Labour Club and all of the audience were either at least as old as me or into their 70s and the students were so freaked out and I said, yeah look, don't look at their age look at her purple hair, look at her Rage Against the Machine t-shirt, yes she's 70, yes but she likes Rage Against the Machine, I think you're going to be okay
0: Well that's what I thought, I was playing Eastbourne the other day at Joe Neary's gig and it was like there was a 14 year old in the front row and there was a guy in his 80s at the back and it was like, and it was, and everyone that you know, there was, no, and you know, what we do is not necessarily seen as what would be live at the Apollo Comedy. If you do you know what I I'm mean, still holding out for the call, <laughs> in, and, and that's not an attack on. Do you know what I mean? It's it, perhaps there is a certain kind of, you know, sometimes there's a line you have from Arthur Smith in the book, which is, uh, you know, where he talks about, you know, that he didn't align himself with these chubby men in frilly shirts who, yeah. you know, deliver their uh, jokes in single file. You know, hmm. and, and that, and that this is, but this is that's this,
2: so beautiful. That's it, so perfectly put.
0: But I think that's what I find interesting from the time I started till now, which is that because it's gone mainstream, but there hasn't been the singular revolution, so, this is the bit that gets confusing for people that, that, that what the, a lot of the clubs you're talking about, you know, Earth Exchange and, and yeah. Elgin and those, which is there, people were already, there was a sense of community. Yeah. In fact, far more than the comedy store or one that, you know, Absolutely. This, yeah, we come to see these anarchists and these weirdos and these freaks and all that kind of stuff. Whereas now, I've just come for a night out to enjoy myself. And to be honest, you are not my cup of tea. And it's like that thing that it's now, we I, I feel to some extent, a lot of the clubs have returned to. Uh, your job, your purpose is not to ruffle feathers. It's, you know what, we had a lovely night out. I can't really remember the jokes, and now we're at Pizza Express. And so then it gets harder to work out where do the slightly weirder and more alternative... Acts go because there's a much broader audience for them, but they may well be ghettoised and they may well never get the publicity that's re- required.
3: Yeah, I think that's true, and I, 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 I think, I think, because you're, you guys are both are in the book, right? Because you're in the final chapter where it talks about the uh, legacy. Give me a second, so I'm right? just going to have a little. <laughs> yeah, I've crossed it. your name oh! out. You'll see. You. <laughs> But but the point is that that I think that that was the, you know when when you guys started to be talked about as a as a movement as DIY comedy or whatever it is, then then there was a recognition that what I start what I suppose was typified by say jongleurs as was, uh, was that thing. It was like the equivalent of the seventies working men's club scene. I think I think the difficulty is you know there might have been a kind of core of performers who were doing interesting and alternative things, but the difficulty is to start a new scene that that. When there's already this scene, right? There's already a circuit. So but how there's do you... a
0: strange divide now. Yeah. Which is. Uh, you know about this, Josie, which is this, the kind of the Edinburgh comics and then mm. there's us oh, yeah. Road comics. It's yeah, yeah. kind
2: of quite a macho thing. But that's been it's... the case since I started. I have always caught flack off of those guys because they're like, oh, how is yeah. this a thing? Yeah. And you're right, they, they're they really proud of this whole doctrine of you should be able to storm any room. Yeah. You should be able to do this, that, the other. And I tell you, the times when they came to my clubs, they could not storm my club. But we are that at the book club as
0: well because sometimes <laughs> someone would say, I really want to play it because for a very brief period, of time it was kind of you know uh it, it had a, a, a kudos it and i cool. would always say to people you're more than welcome to come, but don't do your circuit act if you want to come there's no point first of all you're not going to make the money because the number of acts on and the size of the room it's just kind of you know there, there is the, but also it won't work and that's a very interesting thing sometimes where you see people who have such a, a specific all of the corners of, of very sharp of exactly yeah. what they do and there's no malleability now and, I, and I, I find that interesting because In the end, there's not some big divide. There's lots of, uh, you know, you've had to travel around the country doing all manner of weird gigs, Mm. and I've done that, and we've all done those things... And we've all made a living from doing I know, it. And also we're but all writing
2: our best jokes. We're all writing things that we think are yeah, hilarious. To and be shit, right? as, yeah, nobody's going, huh, this is good. This will really piss
3: everyone off. Like well, some
2: people are but that's their shtick, you know.
3: But people have a really vengeful attitude to comedians they don't find funny, right? It's not that just oh, I mildly dislike them. It's like, I fucking hate them and want them to die. <laughs> and it's like you go, okay, but what they've done is tried to amuse you. That they might have failed, but that's what they've that's what they've done. That was their that was their motive there so why do you hate them so much
0: sorry to interrupt your podcast but i just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing which is that book shambles and the cosmic shambles network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on patreon if you want to support the podcast and what we do tiers start at just one dollar a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in so go to patreon.com slash book shambles
2: can blah, I just blah, blah, blah. say, I'd forgotten that I accepted an award in 2005 with the words, fuck Jonglers, written on my arm. not a political thing, right? That's totally punk
0: rock, right? <laughs> oh, That's my life, mate. You are the, uh, so we, we've nearly run out of time. We haven't had enough time to talk about that, but the book is fantastic, by the way, so because cute. I think as, uh, also not merely about the, the ideas behind it, because it is so exciting. That's, for, for me, the most important thing about stand-up as well. And I think what you do with all your writing on stand-up is you don't, dissected to the point of joylessness
3: I want the books to be read Mm. and it really annoys me when academics write books that are just like horribly unreadable that's what
2: I know about your books is that I know so many people who just are comedians love comedy or in comedy who buy and read your books because they
3: are funny and interesting and like
2: enjoy the joy of comedy like absolutely
3: I mean one of the frustrating things about this because it's coming out in an academic book series it's horrifically expensive and hopefully, if it sells enough copies, it'll go to paperback and then it'll be only ma- marginally expensive. And so it'll try, be and b-
0: try and order it from your library and stuff like that. Because Absolutely. Because I think that's the thing, which is it, it is an expensive book, and, uh, and, and it, but it is really worth, if you can find a way of accessing it, uh, if you can find a way of your library ordering it, whatever it might be, uh, I think it's really because I've always loved it. I mean, I'm just I'd sat in one one sitting and just read the whole thing because I Aww. still I still delight in reading about this world mm. and and the excitement of looking at the cover and some of the posters because I remember you know when when you'd pick up Time Out and I'd start circling where yeah. I was going to go. Yes. And was, oh, Jeremy Hardy, he's he's playing. Oh, he's, he's up in Rathbone Place. Oh, and all of that. So, and yeah. and like, also some like Claire Dowie. That to me is this is what I think some of the best culture is, which is. There I was a teenager and there was this woman on stage, you know, talking about, you know, being a lesbian, which for me was, you know, it was like, ah, well, this is this is a new world and a new culture. And it really was an education. And I was I was very, rarely bored at any of the shows I went to. Mm. I would see people and I'd go. It was so personal, some of it, I and mean, then so ridiculous. So you see something personal, and then we would see, you know, Steve Murray suddenly just, you know, destroying a, a teddy bear. And... But
2: also the best of what I would feel is alternative comedy now is the is the children of that. The best stuff you see now is people doing things that are totally real and vulnerable and then ridiculous in the next breath. You know, there's people who do things that are so inventive and full of ideas I feel like I never feel jaded by comedy I sometimes feel gutted by the way the industry functions or the way that money or whatever is dispersed or I feel gutted when I see someone good give up but I never feel jaded about it because it does always feel like someone is is here every five minutes you know someone new
0: Oliver, double. Thank you. Oh, you've got one. No, please say. I was just going to say,
3: the, the really frustrating thing about this book, right, was there were at least 30,000 extra words I wrote in the first draft, wow. which I had to cut out. And there's a whole extra chapter, which I had to just strip out as part of the process of that, which is about uh, the Meccano Club. and But but we're going to publish that in a, in a later a collection of, of work oh, on... You've so stuff. I
0: played the Club. Yeah. I remember getting that 60 quid as well for doing a 20 minute set. Uh, all the Polish, there used to be Polish theatre posters all the way round it, so sometimes you would get uh, Polish theatre fans down and I remember once the beautiful thing of someone having to translate all of the acts, wow. so you'd get a laugh and then get a laugh, or you wouldn't get a laugh and then you wouldn't get a laugh again, you know, a beautiful kind of uh, thank you
1: Thank you for listening, thank you for your support on patreon.com slash bookshambles or patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. We'll be back with another new episode next week. I believe our guest next week uh, from episodes still recorded before the lockdown is Dr. Adam Rutherford talking about his new book, How to Argue with a Racist, possibly helpful depending on who you're locked down with at the moment. We'll be back then. Take care, stay safe, stay home, and we'll
0: see you then. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.